It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I know we often say that here at Windsor. We believe it. But today as we kind of get back into 1 Peter, the text that we're going to read really, really says that it's all about Jesus. And in the space of a few verses, we're only going to read five verses this morning, but in the space of those five verses, the apostle reveals, in fact, he repeats a number of really interesting aspects about Jesus. Plus, he discloses what it is that distinguishes people from one another in relation to Jesus. So if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick up from where we left off last week. And as I say, we're just going to read five verses. We're going to read from verse 4 to verse 8. So let's stand together for the public reading of God's enduring word. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and a precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him or who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall or a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Okay, grab a seat. We're going to have a little bit of congregational participation. It's been a few weeks since we've done this, Uh, but throughout Scripture, There are many figures of speech that are used to describe Jesus. So for example, in John 15, Jesus is described as the true vine. So what I want you to do is, I want you to shout out for me some other ways in Scripture that Jesus is described a bit like the true vine. Give me a few examples. Sorry? The one, okay, thank you. The good shepherd. The door. The light of the world, yeah. Was that what was said there? Yeah. Let's just pretend it was. It's a good answer. Uh, the light of the world. Yeah, anything else? Way, truth, and the life. Sorry, Dorothea. That is right. Way, truth, and life. Yep. It's echoing in stereo here. Anything else? Living water. Bread of life. Brilliant. The rock. The lamb of God. The prince of peace. The alpha and omega. I mean, we could go on, couldn't we? Well, here in in 1 Peter 2, we just heard heard Jesus described as a stone. Now, I know I say stone strange, right? (laughs) I've been wrestling with this all week. I've been thinking, how am I going to change this, right? So let's just get it out there, right? So if that is off-putting to you, I apologize, okay? I am who I am, okay? I was going to say something else, but anyway. Yeah, so Jesus is described as stone, and different types of stone. Here, here's the way it, we've just read these. He's a living stone. He's a cornerstone. He's a chosen stone. He's a precious stone. He's a rejected stone. He's a stumbling stone. And by implication, he is, or indirectly, it says that he is a foundation stone. Now, I don't know what comes to mind, to your mind, 
as you think of each of those. I mean, just take a wee moment. What, what is it that those imply to you? What do they say to you? What do they communicate to you about who Jesus is? But what I want to do is just take a few moments to reflect on each and, and consider some of the implications. I then do want to think about the two distinct and opposing reactions to this stone, to Jesus. And then I want to finish by thinking about how are we described in that text we have just read and what are our responsibilities? So we're going to jump about the text a fair bit. So if you do have a copy of God's word in front of you, that would be really helpful, be really handy, okay? So let's, let's start with Jesus as the living stone. That's verse four. Now, but, now, before we look at that specific title, it's important to note that for the first readers of this letter, the reference to building in these verses would have immediately sparked thoughts of one particular building. What building would the readers of this letter immediately have been thinking of as they heard Peter talking about a building? The temple, absolutely. The place in the Old Testament where God met with his people and where his people met with him. But as part of their backstory, the people of God had been disconnected from this particular iconic building in Jerusalem, which had subsequently been destroyed when they were carted off into exile. This was a devastating experience for the people of God. They were dislocated. They were distraught. They were disillusioned. But God via the prophets, had promised there's a new day going to come. A new day is going to come when I'm going to restore the people, when I'm going to reestablish Jerusalem, when I'm going to rebuild, and you're going to see the temple rebuilt. Then you fast forward to Jesus, and Jesus comes along. And one of the things that Jesus says, who can help me out here, John chapter 2, Jesus says that he is the what? He is the temple. He says that his body is the temple and it's going to get killed, wrecked, and then raised to life again three days later. That's all in John chapter 2. So no longer, and there's been a massive shift has gone on, no longer do people meet God in a particular place. They now meet God in a particular person. They now meet God in and through Jesus. So then you come forward a wee bit more and you discover that in addition, those who meet God in and through Jesus, they become a new temple. Here's a couple of verses that just illustrate that from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And so what this is communicating is you can now meet with and you can worship God anywhere. You can worship God everywhere. Because where people come together, it's not about a place, it's not about a structure, it's not about a building, it's about people. But at the end of the day, it is all about, and it's all because of Jesus. It's all based on Jesus. It's all built on Jesus, which is why in this text, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus is referred to as a stone. He's referred to as the stone. And to start with, in verse 4, he's referred to as the living stone. But let's think about this for a minute. The living stone. Now, a stone, to all intents and purposes, is a rather inanimate object, isn't it? It's lifeless. It's solid, it's got substance, and in some ways you would think, well, well, maybe that's what Peter's wanting to communicate, is it? That, that Jesus is solid, that Jesus has got substance, but at the end of the day, a stone is also motionless. It's static, it's stationary. 
And so Peter immediately makes this point, point that the stone that he's referring to, the stone that he is raving about, is pulsating with life and energy. This is a living stone. And if nothing else, this is a direct reference to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is something that Peter's already in this letter. For those who have been tracking this, this is already something Peter in this letter has celebrated and he has identified and he has confirmed and he has said, listen, this idea of Jesus being risen from the dead is your source of living hope. So back in chapter one, you'll remember we read this, in God's great mercy, he has given us, we haven't earned it, we don't deserve it, but he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here in chapter two, Peter's now saying, see this stone? This is a living stone. And if we get that, and if we determine that, then because Jesus has been raised from the dead, so will I. Everything changes. So Jesus is living. Jesus is fully alive. Secondly, he is a rejected stone. Again, verse four, have a look at Peter says he was rejected by humans. And then if you go down to verse seven, and Peter here is quoting Psalm 118, he says this stone, this is a stone that the builders rejected. He is a rejected stone. Jesus was dismissed. I mean, let's be honest. Jesus was dismissed by the vast majority of people. He was ultimately dismissed on the cross, the conclusive rejection. And even if you think of, well, hang on a bit, going back to that Psalm 118 reference, if we think of him as a, as a stone that might have been used in constructing something worthwhile, it seems that people actually just tossed him aside and decided, you see this Jesus, this particular stone, he isn't fit for purpose. He's a stone the builders rejected. He's just not fit for purpose. You see, back in the day, some people were expecting a Messiah to show up and sort out. But the kind of Messiah that did come just didn't compute. He didn't fit or fulfill the expectations. He came to serve, not to be served. That didn't make sense to people. He came to love his enemies and to teach his, his followers to bless those who curse you rather than hate his enemies and retaliate against them. Just didn't compute, didn't make sense to have a Messiah like that. He ate with sinners. He ate with prostitutes. He ate with tax collectors. He just didn't fit. And so instead of accepting him or looking to him to build anything positive, people literally discarded Jesus. And as we think about and talk about and present Jesus today, you know, those reactions just still exist. Jesus is rejected. Jesus is dismissed. Most people today refuse to take Jesus seriously. They may kind of respect him in some ways, but they refuse to take him seriously. And they, they consider him irrelevant for not just the task in hand, but for any task in hand. He's an irrelevance. And so Jesus was, and Jesus still is, a reject. He's a living stone, yes, pulsating with life and energy, but he's rejected. And the third description or type of stone that Jesus says, according to Peter, is he's a chosen and he's a precious one. It appears in verse four there, if you've got the text in front of you. Again, it appears in verse six. Now, the idea of Jesus being chosen is or can seem a bit strange, isn't it? I mean, Peter's made it clear that we're chosen. Back in the first chapter, we are elect exiles. Yeah, yeah we're 
chosen. But the thought of Jesus also being chosen does sound odd. Like, why of all people would Jesus need to be chosen? And yet to quote verse 20 of the first chapter, he, that's Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for our sake. But he was chosen before the, the creation of the world. Jesus was Like, I've been chosen. But we've, we've tracked this. You and I have been chosen. So was Jesus. And the point here, or, or certainly one way of understanding this, is that the plan of salvation, the way that God was going to reestablish connection with his people in and through Jesus, that was no divine afterthought. This was planned all along. Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter says this, God knew the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. Jesus was no divine afterthought. There's something mysterious about that concept, something I can't fully explain. But it illustrates the fact that you know something, Jesus was chosen forever ago so that I could be chosen now. Jesus is a chosen stone. And if you get that, if you can accept that, and as I say, that, that stretches our minds, it's hard to get our heads around it. But if we can get that and we can accept it, then Jesus is also undeniably precious. Chosen and precious. The next type of stone is maybe the one that we're most familiar with. Jesus is the cornerstone. We sing about it from time to time. We'll close our service by singing about it. And Peter quotes two different Old Testament texts in those five verses that we read together to remind his readers that this is who Jesus is. Verse 6 is a direct quote from Isaiah 28. Verse 7 is a direct quote from Psalm 118. Now, a cornerstone in our day, or certainly in, in previous days, uh, a cornerstone in the not-too-distant future past. It's often inscribed, it, it often includes a plaque that tells us something about the building. Like in a building like this, it often tells us the date that the building was built. It's more of a ceremonial stone. Generally speaking, a cornerstone is now more of a ceremonial stone. It, it has little or no real importance to the building beyond that. But in ancient times, a, a cornerstone was the most important stone of the entire building. When builders began laying bricks or blocks for a building, they would carefully select one large stone that would hold a strategic place in the construction of the foundation. All the other stones would be set in reference to this one stone. It would be the stone that joined the initial walls into a solid corner, and it would therefore be the stone that determined the position of the building, the structure of the building, the stability of the building. It was all built on and around this cornerstone. The very first thing that a wise builder would do would be to select, would be to prepare, and would be to place the cornerstone, and then to construct from there. Now, I've already made the point that as far as humans were concerned and as far as human builders were concerned, Jesus was a cornerstone that they had just rejected. He's not fit for purpose. But God didn't reject Jesus. Jesus became his chosen cornerstone and upon him, the church, the people of God, the new temple of God has been built and is being, I love this idea, is being built. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Jesus is our reference point. He is the basis on which we stand. He is our support. He is our strength. He is what holds us together. That's why I started the service by saying, listen, it's all about Jesus. It's all about you. He is the foundation of the church. I'm talking church, capital C, universal church, big church, not this church, not Baptist church, big church, the church. 
He is the foundation of the church. He is our reference point. He is the basis on which we stand. He's our support. He's our strength. And he is what or who holds us all together. And for the first readers of this letter, this was gold dust information. Gold dust. Because you see, they were a scattered people as we know. But what this said is, listen, two things. What this said was, you can worship God anywhere and everywhere because it's not about buildings, it's not about structures, it's not about the number. It's about a people built on Jesus. With Jesus as your cornerstone, Jesus as your foundation, you can worship God anywhere and everywhere. Gold dust information. And because this church is being built on Jesus, you will be strong, not in your own strength, but because he is strong. He is strong. You are part of a stable and secure structure. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's his church, all about Jesus. The weak are made strong in the Savior's love, as we'll sing as part of the song Cornerstone in a moment. Jesus is the cornerstone. The church is built on him and around him. And finally, alternatively and sadly, he's also the stumbling stone. Verse 8. And this is another quote from the Old Testament, this time from Isaiah chapter 8. You see, Jesus is a sanctuary for some, but for others, he's nothing more than a potential hazard. Jesus is, for some people, nothing more than a potential hazard. He's not only someone who causes people to lose their footing, he, he actually is, as I said, an offense. If you have an ESV or an RSV version of the Bible in front of you, you'll see that verse 8 is actually translated that he is a rock of offense. We still see this today. Jesus offends so many people. The idea, for example, that Jesus is the only way to God, that no one comes to the Father except via him, that's offensive today in a pluralistic society. The idea that without Jesus, without building your life on this cornerstone, without aligning your life to this cornerstone, without using Jesus as your reference point, that you are then lost and you will perish. That is offensive. The fact that our eternal destiny is determined by Jesus is objectionable. Jesus is a rock of offense. He's a stumbling stone. See, it's all about Jesus, but no, it isn't for many, many people. In fact, the very suggestion that it's all about Jesus is irritating. People today dismiss the message of Jesus, his gospel, his teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection. And therefore, in verse, what does Peter say? Peter says, they stumble. Why do they stumble? Why is Jesus a stumbling stone? Because they disobey his word. Jesus' word just clashes with us. So this idea that we've got to love our enemies, this idea that we've got to bless those who curse us, this idea that we've got to turn the other cheek, this idea that we've got to go the extra mile, this idea that we shouldn't judge people, this idea that we've got to love one another as Christ loves the church. It's a stumbling block. And so by all means, ignore Jesus, dismiss Jesus, reject Jesus, but he then becomes a potential hazard in your life. So Jesus says, 
the living stone, the rejected stone, the chosen stone, the precious stone, the cornerstone, the stumbling stone. But in this section, Peter then spells out the distinction between people. I've kind of touched on this. But at one level, this is the only differentiation. This is the only distinction that ultimately matters in relation to Jesus the stone. And it's this, those who believe in him and those who don't. It, it, it really is as simple as that. That's what it says here. I'm not making this up. Those who believe in him, those who don't. Verse seven, now to you who believe yet, Jesus is precious. But you see to those who don't believe, he is that stumbling stone. It's either or. Trust Jesus and he is priceless, priceless. Or to quote verse six, trust Jesus and you will never be disgraced. You will never be put to shame. Or the alternative is you reject Jesus and you take the fall. Trust Jesus and he's priceless. You'll never be put to shame. Reject Jesus, you take the fall. It's your shout. It's John 3, 16 all over. Whoever believes in Jesus won't perish but have everlasting life. The implication be whoever doesn't believe in Jesus will perish and will not have everlasting life. You see, Peter's readers believed that Jesus was who Peter and the other biblical readers writers said that he was, that he was the living stone and the chosen and the precious and the cornerstone and therefore they didn't reject him and therefore he wasn't a stumbling block to them and at almost too simple a level this is still the situation we face today. There are those people who believe in him and those people who don't. To quote the start of verse four, there are those people who have come to Jesus. The very start of verse four, just look at it. As you come to him, there are those people who have come to Jesus and there are those who haven't. There are those who are part of the church and those who aren't part of the church and it's all about and all because of Jesus. And so the question this morning is, do you believe? Are you trusting Jesus? Are you building your life on Jesus? Is Jesus your reference point? Is Jesus your foundation? Are you aligning your life to Jesus? But as I close, because I realize that for the vast majority of people who are probably sitting in this school this morning, you do believe in Jesus. You are trusting Jesus. And so let me finish with verse five, which I haven't mentioned as yet, because it confirms who we as Christians are, those who do believe. It actually clarifies our identity again and also tells us what we should be about. It says that those who have come to Jesus, you know what you're like? You're like living stones. You're not actually living stones. You're like living stones that you're being built into a spiritual house. You're being built into the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's back to something I said earlier. We are being built together to be the place where God dwells. Being built together to be the, the people of God, the church, capital C, all those who believe are being built together to be the place where God dwells, where God lives, where God is present. And it is, as I say, we are being built. It's an ongoing process, but it's an incredible experience. But we're not just the like living stones being built together into this new temple, the place where God dwells, but we are a holy priesthood. We are a holy priesthood, which means that we're set apart now for the service of God. That, that's, that's our responsibility. That's our role. We belong to God, and we therefore are dedicated to serve him. Well, what does this now involve? Well, end of verse five, it says this. Here's what you're to be about now. You're like living stones. You're being built together to be the place where God dwells, where God is present. And you're a holy priesthood. You've been set apart. You're dedicated to God. You belong to God. Why? To offer spiritual 
sacrifices to your God through Christ Jesus. So the question we have to face is, what are the spiritual sacrifices we are to offer? What are the spiritual sacrifices we have offered this week? What are the spiritual sacrifices we go from here to offer in order to fulfill our calling and our identity? Well, let me make really quick three suggestions. The first taken from Romans 12, it says, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper. We thought about that during the summer. This is about offering. This is about surrendering our whole lives to God, our sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around lives. A living sacrifice we know is an oxymoron. Those two words clash when they're put together, but a sacrifice presented to God, the thing we know about a sacrifice presented to God is that it was totally consumed. And the whole idea was when you brought a sacrifice to God and presented it before God, then it belonged entirely and completely to God. And that is exactly what the writer of this, Paul, was getting at. Paul was saying, listen, God deserves every single part of you. If you belong to him, if you're building your life on Jesus, if Jesus is your reference point, if you're trusting in Jesus, then you've got to offer your entire lives to God as your spiritual sacrifice through Jesus Christ. Nothing should be held back. We put our very lives on the altar and we allow God to consume them because that is our true and proper worship. It's Jesus all for Jesus, all for Jesus. And secondly, praise is a spiritual sacrifice. In Hebrews 13, we read these words, through Jesus, and remember, going back to Peter, spiritual sacrifices offered to God through Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Do you know the critical aspect of that, that phrase is the word continually? Because this is about expressing and articulating our praise and our thanksgiving to God no matter what. A bit like picking up on what Rosie said about the Psalms. No matter what. It's a tough choice at times. It's a definite act of the will. It is a genuine sacrifice that declares the praises of God when we feel like it, when we don't, when life is good and when life sucks, when we can think of numerous reasons to sing and when we can't think of a single one reason to sing. When we're in a good place and when we're in a difficult place. Praise is a spiritual sacrifice. We need, we need to realize that. We need to get that. When we gather here together on a Sunday morning and we open our voices and we sing, we are bringing a spiritual sacrifice of praise. And we must do that. As a holy priesthood, we must continually do that no matter what is going on in the background of our lives. That's why it's a sacrifice. And thirdly and finally, doing good, I love this. Doing good and sharing our resources with others, those are spiritual sacrifices. The very next verse in Hebrews 13 says this, do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Good works and generosity are not just evidence of authentic Christian discipleship. They are important and required spiritual sacrifices. The kind that we as a holy priesthood are now required to offer. So three spiritual sacrifices. Our lives, our praise, our good works and generosity. That's what we've just got to go and live out. 
we just walk out these doors this morning, we just present our lives afresh to God and say, God, it's all yours. It's all yours. Nothing's held back. God, I go out these doors and I'm gonna keep singing. And I'm gonna keep bringing a sacrifice of praise because you are worthy and you are great. All those words we've been saying, you are the lion and you are the lamb. How great is our God. You are the shepherd. All those things we've been saying. We go out and we continue singing those because that's who God is. And at times it requires us to bring a sacrifice of that. And we go out of here and we just do good works. We just do good works. And we are just generous to people with our resources and with our time and with our energy and with our finances and with our homes. We're just generous. And so it's all about Jesus. He's the living, rejected, chosen, precious corner and stumbling stone. Do you believe him or you don't? And if you do and if you've come to him, then go from here to bring those three sacrifices to him this week. May God help us.